So I don't know if you noticed, but on the front of your church was a, a banner was hung this last week. Some people thought it was because we wanted to have something to say uh, to the world uh, on a weekend when we weren't going to be having church inside, but we wanted something to go out. But really, it's just the title of a sermon series that you'll be hearing this week, next week, and the following week. Perhaps it's both. Um, I wanted to bring a, a message to you as a pastor. When I'm entering into a new church, a part, of, part of what the task is is to discern uh, the body of Christ here, who this congregation is and where this congregation is going in the context of where our community is. And uh, I got to tell you, I haven't come up with anything yet. But... I am a Methodist. So while I may not be able to say, and neither could you, to say, well, where are we going, and where's the community going, and all that, as Methodists, we have the great fortune of while we may not be able to say exactly where we're going, we know how we're going to get there. It's going to be methodical. We're going to be serious and disciplined about it. Um, and I wanted to kind of start a sermon series after August 12th, which I think has filled the screen around this town for some time, as we begin to look where are we going in a post-August 12th community, um, and how we might learn from who we are as Methodists, uh, or who we are as a people in a distinct community. So I want to read to you from uh, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a distinct community in Ephesus. And um, I'm going to be preaching this sermon based on these words of John Wesley, do no harm, do good, love God. As he was trying to talk to the Christians in his small groups about what it meant to be filled with the Holy Spirit. What does a Spirit-filled Christian look like? Um... And he got his inspiration from this letter that Paul wrote. <clears throat> Paul wrote to the church, and this is a church in Ephesus that was that 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 town was was in turmoil. Ephesus, it was the crossroads of the world. There's a lot going on, and Paul was talking to uh, the Christians in that town and saying, "This is the way people who have who are made new in Christ behave." This is how the people who see you as followers of Christ and they say, what is different about you? What has changed you? How is it that you are the way you are even though our community is in turmoil? And Paul wrote this. So then, put away falsehood. Let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up stealing. Rather let them labor and work honestly with their own hands so as to have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouth, but only what is useful for building up as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with which you were marked with the seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath 
and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice and be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and give, gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Grieve not the Holy Spirit. Before I learned anything about being a Methodist or, being, or who John Wesley was, and I'll get into that in a minute, before I learned about those things, uh, I learned about some other leaders of the same century as John Wesley. Uh, the first leader I learned about was Paul Revere. My grandmother drug me around the Freedom Trail of Boston uh, she was a Bostonian, and, and, and I, I was probably three or four years old, being drug all through that town, and then that night she said, now I want you to listen to this poem. It was a long poem. I'm just going to read part of it. Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere. On the 18th of April in 75, hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year. He said to his friend, if the British march by land or by sea from the town tonight, hang a lantern aloft in the belfry arch of the North Church Tower as a sing signal light, one if by land and two if by sea, and I on the opposite shore will be, ready to ride and spread the alarm through every Middlesex village and farm from the country folk to be up and to arm. And on it went, all about Lexington, Concord, and the Minutemen. This is a great story about communication. Paul Revere was on the cutting edge of getting messages over long distances. Because Beacon Hill is on one side of the harbor, and Boston's on the other side of the harbor, and the lanterns in the North Church somehow made it possible for him to communicate that something was up that called for action. Um, so Paul Revere was probably one of the first people of that century that I knew, way before I knew who John Wesley was. Uh, and it was all about learning about Boston, because my grandmother loved Boston. So I, had, I was drugged uh, to uh, John, John Hancock's home and heard all about John Hancock and Samuel Adams and the struggle for liberty and had to walk from you know, the Lexington-Concord Bridge. And I knew all about that, that revolutionary time of conflict and all about the leaders. And, and later in life, I became a student. I like to read all those uh, uh, founding father uh, biographies and that struggle for liberty. But it also made me very conscious of conflict and uh, that a lot of things that are born are born out of conflict. Uh, in 1774, it was just one year after the Boston Tea Party. Oh, and yes, I had to go and see the reenactment where they put on the Native American headdresses and threw the tea over the overboard into the Boston Harbor. So one year after that happened, John Wesley wrote a letter. And he entitled it, A Calm Address 
to the American colonies. You see, John Wesley was not in favor of all this nonsense going on in Boston. John Wesley was one who uh, observed what was going on in his nation. He was well aware of what was going on across the channel in France and was becoming more and more concerned about what was going on in the colonies. And what was concerning him was, it, but was the, the leaning into conflict, the leaning into a willingness to do harm to someone else because you feel strongly about something. Hancock, Samuel Adams, uh, all the vigor of those, those constitutional authors. And so he wrote this address, a calming address is what he titled it, Calm Down. You see, at that time, uh, he had begun a movement within England of spirit-filled Christians. And he said there's evidence of being filled with the spirit of the love of God. And the evidence is seen by the world. And it is the Holy Spirit that can transform the world and what he said, reform the nation, but not by conflict, but by the redeeming power of the love of God that can transform. And so he told his people, if you're going to be about this work to reform the nation, first of all, go out there and let people see the love of God in you. But he gave him three rules. Do no harm. Do good. And stay in love with God. Do no harm, do good, stay in love with God. So my sermon today is the first of those. What does it mean to do no harm in a world where it is very obvious how capable we are of doing harm to one another? We're human beings. We're good at it. Now, I don't know, you know, you don't want to, if you can't confess that you're good at it, maybe you can confess that you have been harmed. We all know what it's like to be harmed. But the truth is, we're human beings. We are capable of harming others. And we're pretty good at it. You don't believe me? The tea party. Some, that tea belonged to somebody. And it was thrown overboard. So somebody was harmed. Um, another place I was drugged to near Boston was a place called Plymouth, where in 1620 a group of Christians known as pilgrims or Puritans had, had fled religious persecution in Europe, and they got on a ship called the Mayflower, and they landed on this rock that I had to see, I don't know how many times. And it's not very impressive. Anybody been there? No? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's nothing. And I've, I've seen that rock more times than I want to say, but that, that rock represents a place where, where the Mayflower, came, the people came aboard, came ashore, and with them they brought this great piety and this great love of God. But what they also brought was smallpox and diseases from the old world that pretty much wiped out the indigenous population. Harm was done. In 1620, no, excuse me. So these, these God-loving people were a part of participating in, the, in our capacity to harm one another. Uh, you don't believe that one? We'll, we'll go farther back. In the 12th and thir 13th century, the Holy Roman Empire, mostly of Southern Europe, uh, launched crusades, uh, sending military Holy Roman uh kings and knights to the Holy Land, and they were going to reclaim the Holy Land from infidels who uh, occupied Jerusalem. And it was a bloody war for two or more centuries. 
and harm was done. They were good at it. Um, in the century before Jesus was born, there was a group of pious Jews who did not like the fact that the Hellenistic world, the Greek world, had spread all around uh, the Mediterranean and that a lot of the Jewish tradition and the Jewish practices of the Jewish religion were being eroded by this enlightened Greek thought. And so they rebelled against that and they kind of tore up some things and revolted and harm was done. Harm was done because they were good at it. The Hebrew people, centuries before that, were told that God had given them a promised land full of milk and honey. And they would be delivered out of Egypt in the hands of Pharaoh and into the promised land. And fast forward 40 years, they crossed the Jordan. And on the other side, they found some people who already occupied the land. And harm was done. Harm was done. We're good at it. We know how to hurt people. We also probably know what it is to be hurt. And it's something about this capacity as human beings that we know what it is to be hurt, but we are also capable of hurting that I believe opens us up to something other than ourselves. It opens us up to God. This other than, not from us, that we can hurt and we are hurt, but this benevolent, Love with extreme prejudice in our favor, directed at you from elsewhere. And sometimes it's the harm in the world that opens us up to that. In 1729, uh, John Wesley was a young clergyman who uh, found himself in Georgia. He'd come across to, he was going to convert the uh, indigenous population of that colony and he was going to set straight some of these wild pioneer people who were kind of running amok with no, no more, you know, they were away from home and there were a lot of convicts in Georgia. My, my family's from uh, Georgia. So John Wesley's going over there and he's a, he is young and he is pious and he is educated and he flopped. He did a horrible job in Georgia. Not only did the town people not like him because he was trying to get them to stop drinking this rum that they made, and not only did the government not like him because he was trying to reach out to the indigenous population, but the indigenous population didn't like him because they couldn't understand him and they were afraid of him. Besides all that, he fell in love. Anybody here ever been hurt by somebody you fell in love with? No? No broken hearts in there? Okay, thank you. So he really messed this one up. Not only uh, his, his piety led him to realize that, I, I don't want to go into the whole story about Sophie, but, but, but Sophie was, was the woman he, he fell in love with, and he wound up hurting her, and her dad was the governor of Georgia, and he got in big trouble. And he, I mean, the long and the short is John Wesley found himself in a boat heading back to England with a broken heart, Wondering how in the world it could have gone so badly, how he could have hurt so many people when he'd come over there to just to, to, to preach the gospel. He did harm. And the story is told that on that trip back, he was, he was in great distress about his own heartbreak and his own experience of being harmed and his revelation that he was capable of hurting other people, and he did. And it was perhaps 
one of the most difficult times in his life when he truly said, I am messed up. I need help from somewhere other than myself. And apparently, God came to him. And I think it's probably one of the most difficult um, things to come to terms with in our lives as human beings who are mortals, but we're also spiritual. We've got this spiritual spark inside us, this yearning inside us. And it's very difficult to come to terms as thinking of ourselves as is good and, and, and made from God who is good, and yet we have this capacity to hurt. People get hurt. We hurt one another. We get hurt by others. Too often, the people we are hurt the most by are the people who we say we love or who say they love us. And I think that part of that is because we've kind of opened ourselves up to this powerful thing called love and we let it in with all of our heart and it is flawed and broken in some way and we come away hurt. And that's what happened to John Wesley. I think it's probably happened, I know it's happened to me, I think it's probably happened to every one of you and if you say it didn't, you're lying. Or you're fooling yourself. Because we are vulnerable to love. Love is a powerful thing. Uh, Wesley believed that love was the most powerful thing in all of creation. Christians refer to love as the Holy Spirit. Now, in England in that day, it was a great time of religious turmoil over the Holy Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit was talked about in the churches, and there were, were people who thought that the Holy Spirit had very particular ways of expressing itself in religious people. Um, John Wesley formed this, when he got back from Georgia, he began forming small groups of people who were open to the Holy Spirit. He wanted you to be open to the love of God that came from elsewhere that could redeem you, transform you, and reform the nation. And he, he made this movement, he called them Methodists, and it was a result of this desire for the Holy Spirit to not only enter you from above, but to fill you with what he called a fire of love. This fire of love was going to be uh, able to be witnessed. People would see it. If you were filled with the fire of love, or filled with the Holy Spirit, which is more contemporary language, but back then it was filled with the fire of love, then it would be obvious to people on the outside. And this is what they called holy living Holiness was what people could see on the outside that you were filled with love. You were filled with the fire of love. You were living a holy life. Now, in England in that time, there was a large group of people, mostly in the Orthodox churches, who believed that holiness looked like quiet reverence, prayerful contemplation, and resolute self-discipline. That's what, if you were holy, if you were filled with the Holy Spirit, you were full of quiet reverence and prayerful contemplation and resolute discipline. John Wesley grew up in a home that was like that. His father was an Anglican clergyman. His mother, Susanna, was a very pious woman. She raised, uh, she had 19 children and I think 16 of them lived to adulthood. And she ran that house disciplined. And they prayed, and they, they learned to read scripture. And they, She's an amazing woman. Read about Susanna Wesley. But my goodness, she was pious, and she was strict. 
And she was one of these people who believed that holiness was revealed in quiet reverence, prayerful contemplation, and resolute discipline. This is the home John Wesley grew up in. But then this thing happened to him where, where, where the love of God filled him. And there was this whole other group of Christians uh, in, in that 18th century world who they believed that holiness was revealed through prophetic indignation of injustice. They believed that holiness was revolutionary zeal for the freedom of human beings. They believed that holiness was virtuous piety, that I, I, uh, a Puritan was, was a person who they were so good inside, everybody knew when the Puritans showed up, and they were filled with it as a virtue in themselves that they carried with them. So in this world where people were talking about holiness and there's social, political, religious disunity, John Wesley is watching the revolution start in France where people are getting their heads chopped off. And he's watching the revolution start in America where they're throwing tea into the harbor. And he is distraught because he does not believe that doing harm is evidence of the Holy Spirit. He believed that the love of God was sufficient to reform the nation. His conviction that there's no power greater than the power of love. And the power of love, which comes to the heart of a Christian in the Holy Spirit, is seen. It is visible to the outside world, and the outside world is drawn to it. That you as a, a, a love-filled, Holy Spirit-filled person are a person that the world is going to look at and say, what is up with you? What has happened to you? John Wesley said, you don't need to be full of religious zeal. You don't need to do any harm to anybody. Instead, he quotes Ephesians, you need not steal or lie or curse or wrangle or be anger in order to persuade someone else of your righteousness. That the power of the love of Christ is sufficient to redeem, restore, and convert an individual or a nation or a community. I'm going to say that again. That the power of the love of Christ is sufficient to redeem or restore an individual or a nation. Uh, John Wesley was converted from a rule-following, guilt-motivated, pious pursuer of holiness into a love-filled, others-oriented, relationship-building, fearless Jesus follower. And that is a dangerous person. Uh, let me tell you what happened. So John Wesley got filled with this love, and people started noticing it, and he started showing up in the church. And, he, and it disturbed the people who were pursuing um, holiness with uh, reverence and quietness and discipline. And he wrote in his journal uh, about his experience of going to the church to preach in England. See, uh, John Wesley became unwelcome because his outward demeanor disturbed people who wanted their holiness to be quiet and reverent. One week he wrote, one month he wrote in his journal, Sunday morning, May 5th, I preached in St. Anne's and was asked not to come back anymore. 
on Sunday afternoon, I preached at St. John's. And the deacon said, get out and stay out. The next week, he comes back. May 12th, I preached at St. Jude's. Can't go back there anymore. Sunday afternoon, May 12th, I preached at St. George's and was kicked out of the church. Sunday, May 19th, I preached at St. somewhere else. The deacons called a special meeting and said I couldn't return. Sunday afternoon, May 19th, preached on the street and the constable kicked me off the street. This guy's persistent. Sunday, May 26th, Sunday morning, I preached out in a meadow and was chased out of the meadow when a bull was turned loose during the service. <laughs> Sunday, June 2nd, he keeps coming. Sunday, June 2nd, I preached out on the edge of town and was kicked off the highway. And finally, Sunday afternoon, June 2nd, preached in a pasture and 10,000 people showed up. People were drawn to this guy because something about the way the love of God filled him gave them hope for their own transformation. John Wesley wrote these rules for Methodists because he thought that if people can see how you behave in the world, it gives everyone hope that there is new life for all of us. Paul wrote in his letter to the church in Ephesus about a new life in Christ, the same way that John Wesley talked about what it means to have the, the, the Holy Spirit evident in your life. And he said, this is what that looks like. And this is when he made those rules. So I want to, the first rule, the one we're talking about tonight, is that rule do no harm. If the Holy Spirit is in your life, if the love of God has filled you and you have been transformed, then one of the first things people are going to notice about you is you don't need to disrupt them. You don't need to hurt anybody to prove your own piety. Uh, this is a picture of the result of piety gone amok. It's a picture of a 2,000-year-old statue of Buddha. Apparently, Buddhism had spread into Afghanistan 2,000 years ago. Well, recently, uh, Islamic zealots have, are in power in, in uh, Afghanistan, and they could not abide the evidence that Buddha had been there once, so they blew it up. They tore it down because they could not abide it. They had to take into their own hands what they believed to be true about God, and they made it true by blowing something up. John Leslie would say, if God is truly on your side, if the love of God fills your heart, then you don't need to be blowing things up. If something's going to be blown up, God will blow it up. God does this from time to time. Uh, I... I, I the hurricane down in New Orleans. You remember seeing the radar as it kind of zeroed in on New Orleans and, and all the people said, it's an act of God. You know, that's what the insurance companies call it, an act of God. And there was great harm done. I spent three years going down there on mission teams, cleaning up after that thing. Hurricanes hurt people. Uh, volcanic eruptions in Hawaii hurt people. Uh, earthquakes. Acts of God hurt people. God, God has made a world where we are harmed. We already established we've all been hurt. But this idea of being a holy, spirit-filled Christian is the idea that if, when harm comes, and it's going to come, it can be an act of providence like that. 
And God sometimes does act. Uh, when God delivered the Hebrews from Egypt, great story of Judaism, delivered out of the hands of Pharaoh, and the seas parted, and they left Egypt. But the rest of that story is the, is the Hebrew people went on into the wilderness. The waters came back and drowned the Egyptians, and they were harmed. Moses uh, led the people to the Jordan River, and they crossed into the Jordan River. And one of my favorite stories growing up was about Joshua. Fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, right? Well, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't defeat, they couldn't do any harm to the people in Jericho because they were behind those big walls, so they just kind of marched around and prayed, and all of a sudden the walls fell down. They didn't, they didn't tear the walls down. God tore the walls down. But harm, those, those walls were harmed. Uh, it can be argued that any time change uh, occurs, that whatever was established before is harmed by the thing that follows. The Roman Empire was harmed by the influx of Christianity. Monarchies were harmed when this idea of liberty and freedom and democracy rose. The monarchy fell. Racism, slavery institutions are going to be harmed as God's people embrace liberty and freedom and inclusion. My favorite is tyranny. Tyranny's been around in many forms, but I tell you, tyranny will be harmed, has been harmed, whenever nonviolent resistance is pursued. Ask Gandhi in India. That was quite a blow to the British uh, colonialism. Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement was quite a blow to many institutions in the South. We're still in the midst of it. But if we can hear these words of John Wesley for a people of faith, the harm that is done to institutions or people or walls because of the movement of the Holy Spirit is the work of God. It need not be your work. See, doing no harm is to be a person who believes that the love of God that transforms you can also transform this world. Remember how I told you Paul Revere used that really cool technology to spread the word that, there was, that something was going to be happening? And... Uh, it traveled across the distance of Boston Harbor. I don't know how many of you know, but last week your church, First United Methodist Church, was harmed by a internet troll and a cyber attack spreading a false falsehood about your congregation. And whether you know it or not, you were harmed by that really clever, trendy communication device. It's a little better than two lanterns in the North Church, but it's the same idea. Our response as a people, confessing that we ourselves have been harmed and that we ourselves are capable of harming others, is to rely and believe that the Holy Spirit of God is the only thing that can do harm to others that, print, that transforms and revives. We do not. So that is the real challenge of faith, especially in this Wesleyan idea.
that the Holy Spirit of God will reform. The Holy Spirit of God will revive and redeem and restore people, individuals, nations, and communities. And as Paul wrote to the, to the church in, in Ephesus, excuse me, grieve not the Holy Spirit. That's what he says. Grieve not the Holy Spirit. Grieve not love. Don't let love grieve by your actions. Instead, you take wonder when you see the Holy Spirit transform your world. This is the challenge of people of faith. Believe in the Holy Spirit and do no harm. Instead, do good and stay in love with God. Amen.